one of the Hindu party, BJP party leaders in the parliament um, recently, he said, quote, Muslims and Christians will be wiped out of India by December 31st, 2021. It is a member of parliament. And if we don't wake up to it, something seriously wrong with us. This is Crossing Phase, the podcast featuring a Christian and a Muslim talking religion and politics. Your co-hosts for this adventure are me, Matt Hawkins, a once policy director for the Southern Baptist Convention, and my friend John Pinna, former director of government and international relations of the American Islamic Congress. Show notes, bios, and all our social media links are available at crossingphase.com. We are, of course, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. And if that wasn't enough, you can stream directly from CrossingPhase.com and at CrossingPhase on Facebook. Our special guest today is John Prabudas. He is president of the Federation of Indian American Christian Organizations based in Washington, D.C. John Prabudas, welcome to Crossing Phase. Thank you. Good to be here. And uh, he was invited, reached out uh, via text, probably, I think, by my co-host, John Pinna. John Pinna, welcome back, as always. Oh, it's good to hear you. We, you know, we were, we're so we, were, we had this great pro- program planned. Right. We were going to get all scrappy with, between you, this, the two of us. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, my outrage for what's happening in India, where you convinced me not to troll people. Right. And to actually get somebody <laughs> on. So... Um, I'm overjoyed that my reputation and that is, is uh, wherever it may be at this particular juncture is not uh, going down into the tube by right. trolling people on, on India. So, right. Um, so, so to put some context on this, we uh, woke up this morning reading some really terrible news in our view coming out of India related to some a new citizenship law that has been passed that looks at the very least uh, like it's going to breach the religious freedom um, of a whole host of, of uh, indigenous people uh, in that country. And uh, we're, uh, we're kind of torn. We're, we want to educate ourselves on the situation. And we're also pretty outraged at the moment that we're not hearing much vocal condemnation or even acknowledgement uh, from certain quarters of the U.S. government. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing is that, you know, we, I, I know not just enough to be dangerous about India. I, my but I, we know something critical is going on. We know we've been that this has been happening for about a year, is that this has been coming down the pike. And particularly six months ago, we knew that yeah. there was going to be a law change. But the fact of the matter is, is that we have institutions here that advocate for religious freedom. And when it comes to this particular issue, there's been some, it's been silence yeah. uh, amongst our institutions here. And so um, I, I, I did spend, send two tweets out about it, but uh some of that frustration has culminated in us deciding to steer the show in this direction. That's right. But so we need we needed to get somebody smarter than us right. to talk about it. So, so that's what John, another John P. Uh, right. is, is to do the jumpy number two. We want to make sure we uh, understand the nuances here and uh, decided to channel our rage into something productive and, and create a listenable show, I think. So, John Prabhuda, tell us a little bit about your agency and uh, what you do in Washington. Well, our organization is um, primarily is of made of Indian American Christians mm-hmm. uh, who have migrated to this country in the past uh, 70 years or so. Um now, what we are looking at is, um, I mean, we are, we, are, we are representing about 600,000 Indian American Christians currently 
in Washington. So when we when I say six hundred thousand Indian American Christians, uh, we are as a as a representative organization. Uh, we want to reflect the sentiments, uh, the anguish, the uh, expectations, um, the anxiety of the Indian American Christian organ, uh, Indian American Christian population, um, primarily because see, out of the seventy uh, years or so who have migrated uh, to this country, out of the six hundred thousand, I would say about four hundred plus thousand were born in India uh-huh. have migrated. Um, or maybe a little less, um, but their family members, uh, those who are born here, uh, also have a very strong ties to the country of their uh, the, the country of birth of their parents. So they do visit often back and forth. They do they are involved in the church, uh-huh. uh, the mother uh-huh. church from where they come from, and uh, that involvement. Uh, is being jeopardized by a government uh, political party that, uh, I mean, if I may say so, this is the same political ideology that got, that that actually assassinated uh, Mahatma Gandhi, the father of nation. Mm. Now, okay. interestingly, this government, the party in power, considers the killer of Ga- Mahatma Gandhi as a n- great nationalist that mm. should be honored and if i'm not mistaken they were trying this year to declare a national holiday on his birthday gosh um, so so it is that it, this is this is to underline the the angle from which they are coming yeah. um their yeah. their agenda is to create a nation for purely hindu or yeah. whatever that may yeah. be um to the exclusion of the christians and muslims so, John, let me ask you a question here. So, you know, because I, I know, like I said, the B, we have this entity called the BJP and we have the RSS. There's and, and maybe you could get into just answer three questions just to give us context. One is, who are the religious groups in in India and what is the makeup? Because I always say 50% of India is Hindu, the other 50% are Muslim, Christian, and other religions, right? And and that's usually how I describe it. And then you have these entities, the RSS, the BJP, and and these are we don't without getting too much in the weeds. Maybe you could just describe the context of what of what in the makeup of India right now from a religious perspective, and then the entity that's in power, and 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 how they relate to each other. Just just in brief, just so we get a little bit of background. That's good. Uh, so the Christians are about uh, 2,000 years old. The church in India is 2,000 years old. Uh, to be precise, the church was established by Apostle Thomas in AD 52. Wow. Um, that is about, that's about uh, you know, a dozen or so years after the ascension of Christ or the crucifixion of Christ. So Thomas was uh, taken... Um, by the a group of uh, disciples, as um, you know, they—they they, I think they—they they kind of uh, uh, was he one of the twelve? He's one of the twelve guys, right? Yeah, one of the, one of the twelve. Yeah, yeah, okay. 12, one of the twelve. Um, so he he and Bartholomew were given the uh, charge to go eastward. So Bartholomew and Thomas traveled, of course, separately. But their uh, stoppage was the Jewish synagogues who were all across the Central Asia. And they crossed uh, the Persian region to come into the Indian 
uh, Indo-Persia, they, they used to call it, came into the northern parts of India, northwestern parts of India. And then because of the um, uh, political instability and or wars, uh, they didn't feel uh, comfortable enough to stay. They go, he goes back to uh, Jerusalem. Actually, he goes back to Damascus. And from there, he hitches a, a boat ride with the, with the traders to come and land in the southern parts of uh, uh, India, in the, uh, the place called Malabar Coast. So there he establishes churches, and finally he was killed in a, in a place called Madras, uh, Chennai, uh, these days it is called Chennai, uh, which, is, um, which is where I come from. And that's where his body was there till about, for about 200 years or so, 260 or something, his body was exhumed by one of the rulers. And um, the, the, the uh, tradition says that he accompanied the, the remains of Apostle Thomas and brought to Ephesus. Um, so that's a different kind of a history. The reason why I'm saying that is because there was no such thing as Hinduism at that time in history. Mm -hmm. The Hinduism is a religion of Central Asians who crossed over into the Sindh Valley, which is now in Pakistan. Yeah. The Sindh River Valley yeah. is in Pakistan. That's where um, the people who lived there were not um, uh, Central Asians. They were, their, their Y chromosome is completely different. Uh, to this day, the people who came in from northwest parts of, uh, uh, across the, uh, the Hindu Kush mountains had what you call the Vedas, which is, which is the uh, religious text. The four great Vedas, the Rig Veda, Yazur, Sama, and Adarvana, these four Vedas they bring in. Um, their religious ideology was not practiced in the large parts of the continent, subcontinent rather, until about 7th, 8th century AD. Because during the time, um, in the southern kingdoms, it was all predominantly Jain, Buddhist, and Thomas Christians. Um, but these people were able to um, uh, bring, install their kings and um, took over the temples, took over the monuments, uh, the properties that were belonging to uh, these temples that, was, that all came under uh, these group of people, today they are called the Brahmins. Um, then they uh, divide the society into four categories, the Brahmin, Kshatriya, Vaishya, the, the traders, the warriors, and the servant class, who are the untouchables. Um, that's when what you call today the Hinduism comes into existence in the South India. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, remember, remind you, that was the 8th, 9th century. So for 800 years until then, the Christianity had been already there in India. Now, what these guys are saying is that the Brahmin uh, population is only about 3 to 4% of the total population. But they had these grievances that they were once rulers. Uh, after they crossed over the Hindu Kush mountains, they became the rulers. They won the wars and they subjugated the nat native population, imposed their religious ideas on them, divided the society according to their uh, uh, liking. And then in the 12th, 13th century, you have the new wave of enemies coming in, in their, in their opinion. And they were bringing a new ideology, which was Islam. 
And the Islamic armies basically had already run over the Central Asia, and they were coming into uh, the Indus Valley. This is this is a very crucial uh, point to understand to understand what's happening today in India, because the Brahmins lose their grip over the society. The Islamic kings they impose their ideology and their religion on the people then the Brahmins feel that um, they need to get their power back. And it takes about 250, 300 plus years uh, until they were able to raise armies and kings who could fight, match the strength of the Islamic rulers. Um, But during this time, unfortunately, this is about 1600 uh, AD, during this time, there was another entry coming into the country, and and they were called the East India Trading Company. And the British coming into India as East India Trading Company to do trading soon started raising their own army and captured most of the vast territories of the subcontinent from different Islamic kings. So now the Brahmin kings, or their their, uh, successors, are feeling that they were about to break in and drive the Muslims out of India, but these guys are coming in with guns and gunpowders. They were not able to manage. So 300 years of that rule, I mean, only in 1852, then you have the British Parliament uh, uh, passing a a resolution in the Parliament taking over the administration of the territories from the East India Trading Company. Mm -hmm. Then they do this, you know, Census Bureau and everything comes in and and they do survey, uh, they survey the land. They they did a lot of things uh, to actually bring, uh, make make a country out of, uh, 450 some territories and kingdoms and and they well they were doing it this one of the major things that they did was introduction of common education because until then uh, the Muslim not the Muslim the uh, Brahmins forbade locals from uh, um, getting an education they said your job is for uh, you know some of the, some of them are traders some of them are um, uh, farmers and some of them are warriors you don't need education you don't need to uh, write and read and that belongs only to the brahman the brahman comes from the hmm. the forehead of lord brahma the brahma is the creation god of creation so it is a, it's a whole different ideology we can talk for 7 hours uh, in a different uh, subject but the conflict today that you see is a conflict that going back to the 12th, 13th century when the Brahmins lost control of the society to the Islamic uh, armies coming through. Now they are saying they are, they are going to take revenge. Now, you should also remember that in 1947, when British um, uh, were trying to give independence, see, in, in 1852, when the British parliament took over the administration of the territories, one of the objective for them was to turn over the administration to locals. That was the mandate. So only at the time of um, Lord Mountbatten, who was appointed as the Viceroy to the Indian territories, um, comes there with a specific mandate to wrap up the British rule in India. Mm -hmm. So he is in a a time crunch. 
and he needed to get this thing done. At that time, the Hindu, the RSS you mentioned, uh, John, you mentioned about the RSS, which is the Rostrius Vyam Sevak song. And their ideology is that no two races and nations can coexist. Interesting. It is uh, interesting that they borrowed this idea from uh, Hendrik Heimler. Yeah. Yeah, of all people. Something of an ethnic supremacy argument, kind of yeah, a blood and soil. Supremacy. It's kind of a blood and soil argument. Uh, exactly. Localized to India. Is that fair to say? And uh, I think some of the yes. history that you have unpacked for us is kind of a glimpse into uh, how complex it, uh, a nation's history can be when someone is trying to, even if they're the dominant population, uh, they're trying to uh, communicate and establish that a nation's history uh, only belongs to one kind of people group and one kind of religion. Uh, and yet, as you as you uh, laid out for us uh, very eloquently, uh, even if you wish it were a different way, the history is at, at very least complex in India. Uh, yeah, dating, very complex. Dating back well well into the first century, right? Exactly. Now, now in 1947, when uh, people like Savarkar and uh, who are the founders of this uh, this radical uh, Hindu ideology, uh, when they started saying, "Well, if the British have to leave," mind you, though, also uh, the RSS did not ask for an independence from British. Yeah, they yeah. they were actually. Um, very much in favor of having British rule the country. But Gandhi, on the other hand, had mobilized the whole nation against us versus them. Um, an Englishman was the enemy for him, mm-hmm. but he had this moral high ground to have the British um, uh, have the comfort level to, to kind of listen to him. Now, when, when the RSS started saying that, um, we cannot live with the Muslims. You, know, you have to have a nation for, only for the Hindus, not a secular democracy. There was another guy in the Indian National Congress Party at that time working with Gandhi. His name was Jinnah, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. He tells uh, uh, the leadership in, um, in England, in London, that if they are going to leave the country, that he is afraid for his people that the, the Hindus will destroy them. And so he said, for the protection of my people, I need to have uh, a separate country. If you, if the British have to leave India, then, then they put their foot down and say they need to have a separate country because of the threat coming from the Hindu radical groups. And Jinnah now, was the founder of, of Pakistan, or he's credited yeah, with- Yeah, Jinnah was the founder of Pakistan, ended up being the founder of Pakistan. Um, but then Gandhi said, Gandhi tried to convince uh, the whole uh, Muslim uh, leadership saying that let them have the first uh, government in India. He refused, no, you, you will die after five years or so. Then what, we, what happens after that? You know, as long as you are here, that's fine. And after your period, what happened? The same threat that they are facing today, they, he was able to foresee it. So he creates this separate country. Now, Today, the BJP party in power is saying that the motherland, the Akhand Bharat, the pan-India was divided and it's bleeding because their motherland was divided by the Muslims. Now, 
for them it is a revenge. Um, at that time, by the time of partition, they say more than 30% of the uh, of Pakistani population were Hindu. Now it is less than four or five percent. What happened to all that people? You know, they have been you know, there are cases of uh, forced conversions and this and that. So, so this is a long-standing um, a problem that they have been trying to resolve. Now they got the strength in the parliament and. Um, uh, enough population, they convinced enough population, of well, a, a substantial number of population in India to stand with them. And and it is, you know, if you look at it even today, the North, the, this is the, all the violence that is taking place against this religious, this uh, citizenship amendment bill is taking place only in the North and around hmm. Bangladesh. Okay. Not in the South, because in the South, it was not a matter. It was... The people in the South did not have the same experience the people in the North had for the last 700, 800 years. So in, in South India, if you look at it, the Muslims who came there were traders. They were the merchants. The Jews who came there were traders and merchants. The Christians have been there for 2,000 years. And they have, um, in the last 600 years or so, they are the pioneers of bringing education to those who were excluded from getting an education. So so the dynamics, the perceptions, everything is completely different from north to south. So almost it is two different nations, if you will. But in the north, they wanted to take revenge. So if you look at um, the prime minister's speech and the political party leaders' speech, they will say, now we got their, uh, got, uh, we, we have established our honor this is the answer to 1947 partition um, that the other party had unjustly um, accepted. And so they are finishing off the unfinished business. That's exactly the words that they have been using in the last four years. I mean, the last four days, rather, uh, to say that, you know, getting the Muslims out of the country is their first priority. But how can you do it? There are about 180 million, 200 million Muslims in the country. What are you going to do? So right. you have to go back to what Savarkar told them. The Savarkar, the founder of the organization, said in his book that the Muslims can live in India, but not as equal citizens. They should not have the right to vote. They should be. They should not have the jobs in the government. They can exist there, yeah. but they cannot be equal citizens. Yeah. Now, what happens, what, why do why do as an Indian Christian, I'm concerned about it, is because if it is like uh, Niemuller's uh, uh, the, the, the statement. You know, today it may be the Muslims and tomorrow it will be Christian. They are already talking about Christians because the Northeast India is, as you know, uh, Matthew, um, the Northeast, Northeast India is about 90% uh, Baptist. You have so, uh, states like Nagaland, Mizoram. There's a lot, almost almost 98 percent percent Christian. Yeah. So we're talking about a a long history of Christians, a long history of Christians in the country, and then we have incursions by different different groups, the Hindus, Muslims, and so forth. Now we have a matrix of uh, Indian Christians, uh, Indian Muslims, Indian Hindus, and then the the Daleks who are are uh, a different religious belief, right? Um, and we have 
about um, uh, fifty percent the south of the country is is non-Hindu. We have uh, the the uh, uh, Gandhi who promoted the one the one India concept, right? Which was the idea that all these different faiths and ethnicities existed in India. Um, and then you have this other group that's that wants to have the one Hindu nation, the one Hindu concept that's 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 saying that you need to be of of Hindu uh, belief, you need to speak Hindi. Um, I, I think is it fair to say that there are different that they, there's multiple populations in India and some of them don't speak Hindi? Uh, right. You, like I remember yes. us having that conversation over coffee and you're saying, well, if you require it to be Hindi, then that, then that, that changes things because, uh, in government, because even though you might be able to get voted into office, you won't be able to participate and transact, uh, legislation. And then you have this end up this, with this law that is, uh, moving farther from the one, the one India concept into a, a Hindu stunt type 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 thing is that is that correct yeah that is that is correct that is correct because they are they you know their motto is uh, hindu hindi hindustan right yeah so, they, yeah the and one religion one one um, uh, people one nation that, that basically that's a formula that they follow right and, and so, this legislation is a step towards that goal so the three things, so with this legislation, the, the, what is the, what's, if you could just, what the, you, you, you sent me a text about this, what, what the, the, the legislation says it says is intended to do this, right? But what actually is it doing to the different religious populations? It, it, it fortifies the Hindu, Hindu population. And then what is it doing to Christians, Muslims, and others? What's the, what's the intent? If you could just walk us through what this law does. See, this law as amended, as passed in the parliament, uh, both houses of parliament last, last week, is, will not pass the constitutional test. Because the constitution clearly prohibits uh, any legislation, any prohibition um, or exclusion on the basis of religion. Now you have to understand India was 452 kingdoms and principalities when the uh, British people left, uh, gave independence to India. And he, they, they also gave a charter to them that they can remain as independent country or if they so choose can join with India or they can join with even Pakistan. So a lot of people don't realize it's a confederation of states, right? It's no, a no, yeah. They they all think even in Washington, people think that the India is one country. It right. is not so. I mean, yesterday, two, two, and three days ago, I was talking to a, a retired um, a major general, and he he when I told him India is several nations, and he said, "What are you talking about? India even today? See." Um, I will. Not, I won't be able to understand my wife's language. She comes from a different region, a different kingdom, ruled by different. And as a matter of fact, her kingdom was annexed to India in only 1953, not 1947. Huh. The king, the king Nizam, was asked to uh, join the nation. He he wanted to join Pakistan, but he's well, he was in the right in the middle of uh, what you see as India today. And he wanted to join Pakistan, but then um, Nehru and his uh, deputy um, basically said, if you don't join us, we are going to throw you out of the country. And he 
took all his um, diamonds and necklaces, everything on a plane load and, and, and left, uh, went to Australia. Um, you know, that's a whole different story. And, 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 and actually the, the, the Kohinoor uh, diamond is in the, uh, queen of England's, uh, crown is his crown, uh, diamond that he presented, gifted to the, to the English, uh, viceroy at the time, hmm. you know, so he was known for a big collector. He was a big collector of, uh, um, um, uh, gemstones and, and precious stones. And he took all of them and left the country. At that time, that his country was annexed to India. So this was even um, before Pakistan was divided. Then the Pakistan, not Pakistan, rather uh, Kashmir was divided. Then uh, Pakistanis wanted to claim uh, that uh, Kashmir. Then Kashmir king was a Hindu. Um, I he flees to uh, Delhi and tells his friend uh, Nehru that I need your support because I don't have an army. Because until 1947, the British were their protectors. They had the army, they had the gunpowder. So they, uh, you know, all that you need to do is to just give them the protection money and they were protecting their kingdoms. Now he didn't have an army. He goes to Nehru and Nehru sends his army back and pushes um, the Pakistanis uh, back but but he was not able to claim the the whole territory and that is why you have this this Kashmir problem so this country this party political party has this long-standing dream to um, subjugate the Muslims and have Hindu Hinduism when they call it Hinduism it is the religion of the Brahmins yeah. not even the religion yeah. of the local people yeah it's, so, it's a particular expression of Hinduism right? As you explained, yes, the, the yeah. Hinduism, the word Hindu was coined. I mean, the word Hindu has been there for a long time, but the Hindu word, the word Hindu, was given a religious connotation, an identity, only by the British. The British in the 1800s, after the 1852 resolution in the parliament um, in, in, uh, in England, they come and they, they wanted to do a census. In the census, they were able to identify the caste and everything, and then they could not identify what <laughs> faith that they follow. There are hundreds right. of faiths. Right. So he he kind of got everybody, and 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 they they categorized them as the Hindu as a religion. Okay. Those who were not able to uh, say they are Muslim or a Christian or a Farsi or a, a Jew ended up being called Hindu. Interesting. So, so what we typically refer to as Hindu as shorthand uh, is something of a Western uh, categorization of, of what really is a very diverse set of, uh, I don't know what you, you want to call them, indigenous religions, uh, folk religions. Is that a fair description well, or is that inaccurate? It is, yeah, it is, it is, uh, it is um, a combination of uh, um, the nature worship, uh, the, the um, form of worship of forefathers, yeah. um, the, the departed spirits, and things like that, with uh, the the Vedas, the Rig Vedas, no, the, the, the Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, that yeah. concept. Yeah. So it is, it, is, yeah. it is an interesting idea that I have been writing a book, a book on that thing too. It is an interesting idea how this, this new um, convoluted faith Mm-hmm. comes into focus, comes into existence. Interesting. Um, I, again, the Hinduism, again, it's a, it's a, you know, it comes from Sindh. 
And the Persians and the Arabs did not have the word yes, I believe the, the, the pronunciation yes, um, uh, or H. Uh, so they, they called them Yind, Yind. Uh -huh. And from there, the people who lived there as Yindian. And that's how the Hindu comes into it. Because otherwise, until then, even in the 1700s, 1800s, uh, if you ask one of my forefathers, because I come from that part of the world, um, my great-grandfather, if you had asked, he would not have said he is a Hindu. He would have said he is either a Vaishnavite or Saivite mm -hmm. or, um, or a Shakti follower. There were different faiths, but they did not have a particular name for that faith. Um, but this is, this is the kind of political scenario that, that we have. And this party is coming and saying, and not only they are saying that the Muslims and the Christians from Sri Lanka are the Muslims from Pakistan and Bangladesh cannot become uh, Indian citizens, even if they have lived there for 50 years as refugees. Yeah. In, in this particular bill, there is another provision. Um, called the overseas citizenship of, um, you know, if I can prove that I'm one-eighth Indian, parentage-wise, I can have something called an Indian overseas citizenship, which mm -hmm. is not a dual citizenship in, because India does not allow dual citizenship. Okay. But it is, it is um, a kind of um, an identity, identity given to people with one-eighth of blood, Indian blood, Okay. To travel to their motherland, so like Jewish people from all over the world can go to um, uh, Israel or Jerusalem. That's the idea behind it. That sure. everybody sure. with that parentage lineage can can travel to the country without a visa and go there and and be involved in everything except for running for political office or to own agricultural land. Okay. Everything else that we can do, um, unlike having um, uh, someone with a visa going to India. Now, they are saying that if you come and seen speaking in a church, then your overseas citizenship will be canceled. Wow. So someone like yourself and were to travel back to India uh, because of your overseas citizenship, you have access but you're a Christian, and so if you were to appear at a church uh, and be speaking, you could have that citizenship revoked, right? Yes. Wow. That would affect, I imagine, a great many people around the globe. Almost 600,000 of my constituents here in the U.S. In the, in the U.S. alone, and that I presume yeah. that, that, doesn't, that doesn't include uh, people who have, or who have migrated to other countries. Yeah, That's in England, there was somebody, a famous case about three, four weeks ago happened. Uh, one a gentleman by the name Tassir, he is a columnist at Times um, uh, newspaper in London. Uh -huh. um, and he wrote an article um, titled The Divider-in-Chief, referring to the Prime Minister of India, uh, how he is dividing people on religious uh, grounds. Um, guess what? <laughs> Three days later, his his citizenship, the overseas citizenship card was revoked. Right. Did he anticipate that happening? No, he did not anticipate. Uh, but now, see, this is what the intolerance of this the the party in power now that if you say anything remotely critical of their policy, then they'll pound on you. Yeah. So they, they pound on you so hard and so fast, nobody else will dare to say anything. Because 
for the last six years, newspaper editors, newspaper reporters, anchormen, anybody who can write columnists, anyone who can say anything against this government would lose their job next week. That's lost it. So all the reports were only should be in their favor. You cannot criticize them. So they had that much power over the media. Fascinating. And now for the first time, you are having large scale violence. I mean, uh, there were footages that I have not confirmed it, that in Delhi, when the violence broke out after passing of this bill, um, buses, public transport buses were burnt. Yeah, I saw some of that picture. Yeah. Now, yesterday, before yesterday, I got some footages, uh, video clippings and pictures showing that same bus before it was burning, before it was burnt or lighted, I see police pouring something into the bus. Same bus. Oh, goodness. So it, 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 it opens up a whole lot of questions. Why would they have to do such a thing, burn a public, public property and blame it on, the, on a minority community, in this case, the Muslims who were protesting? Yeah. Now, what is Washington doing about yeah. it? That's that's where that's what we should be asking in yeah, Washington. That's a great question. Are we still thinking that Modi is the best thing that happened to <sighs> India, like our president has you know, repeatedly confirmed? Right. Or are we having questions about this party's motives? And, and what is going to be America's long-term interest if we help this radical party push India in one direction? Right. What do you what do you see as a way forward for for U.S. policy uh, related to India? Like, what are the policy recos? Yeah, what, what if you were going to say what are the top five, three to five policy recos? What would it be? What would they be? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a good question. Right now, I would say that with the the amendment, the bill that was passed, um, one issue is becoming. Sc- Seriously critical for American perspective. I mean, you know, what is happening to the Muslims and the citizenship and you know, the refugees, that is a, a very, very serious uh, matter on one side that the U.S. can um, express its displeasure. Uh, you know, that is that is a whole different idea. But but the, the, the one other area that that affects the Americans, American citizens, is that every single day. A dozen or so American citizens are thrown out of the country or they are put out, put on the same plane that they came in, not even allowed to enter the country. Now, they, I mean, I have, I have had so many people come and talk to me about it. And there are hundreds and hundreds more, I mean, tens of hundreds of people who are not willing to say anything because they have a mission going on in India. They don't want to jeopardize all those things. So what I'm asking the president is to tell the Indian prime minister that this should not ever happen again, that no American citizen should be put on a plane and sent back regardless of what he is doing or or, or regardless of what what his uh, uh, visa status is. As long as he is a legal American citizen, going to India on a legal visa to visit friends or to meet with, um, uh, to supervise uh, ongoing mission activity in, in any part of the country, they should not put send that person back to the U.S. And, um, and, and, and the other thing, the, the um, um, associated uh, uh, point with that is that 
uh, people like um, myself, for example, who are American citizens, but going to India um, cannot be charged or our uh, right to stay with the family members cannot be um, undermined. They, they cannot deport us without, um, unless that person has a criminal record or criminal activity. And if he's engaged in a criminal activity, uh, like an arson, or if he's engaged in drug smuggling, that is understandable. They can prosecute them, they can deport them, that's fine. But just because they are Christians, they cannot, you know, just um, uh, about eight, nine months ago, um, a gentleman came from New York uh, to see me. He is a priest, um, the Episcopal priest, the National Council of um, Churches uh, president, um, um, Mr. Jim Winkler, referred him to me. And I asked him what happened. And he said, well, he went with 13 other people. And uh, in the form, on the immigration form, they put where they were going to stay, an address, and they put Bishop's House, Cathedral Road, Chennai. And the immigration office, the officer stopped. What is your relationship to the Bishop's House? And he said, we are coming from New York State. Uh, and this, this gentleman is the, is the president of the National Council of Churches chapter in New York, New York State, from Albany. So when he told them that he is going to meet with the bishop and uh, just visit um, other churches, they sent all 13 of them back from the airport. And the interesting thing is, unacceptable thing is, the chief immigration officer at that airport, Chennai airport, told them that he will not let another American Christian enter his country openly. Mm. Challenged yeah. him. And if, if American political leadership still keeps quiet about it, that's our weakness. That we are not willing to stand up to our faith. And that is my ask today. What do you think is we, should be done practically and then from a policy standpoint? From policy standpoint, I think uh, appeasing this radical group for economic and trade benefits is a wrong way to go about. The U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom has openly recommended sanctions against Mr. Amit Shah, who pushed this bill through the parliament. Amit Shah is the second in command next to Prime Minister Modi. And I would ex expand that uh, recommendation and say we sanction both Modi and Amit Shah. You know, you know, when I unpack this, like as a, just somebody on the outside, I just, I just think you know, right off the bat, it's, I mean, it just seems so obviously um, like just in the last three or three years, I mean, we know the Rohingya and are happening in the Miramar, and we know that, uh, of course, the Uyghurs in, in China, and of course, I'm skewing things towards the Muslims right now, but it seems like the, it seems like a, a Miramar-esque type of situation that affects all these religions, and it's happening in real time. So the, the first step is, is for these institutions that steward religious freedom, including Ambassador Brownback, to, to say something, to say, this is... This just does not fit in with the commitments that you've made on international freedom. And then from there, focus on the individuals and the institutions in India to help make them or, or help bring them to the to the into the right light. Is that is that a fair assessment? It, it is. It is. Um, but to, to, to know how aggressively we say it and how serious are we about it, about it is it also makes a difference. If the president tomorrow 
um, goes on the Rose Garden and says something like, if you are going to deport one American citizen, I'm going to send you a, a plane load of Indians from here, deport them from, from New York and Washington airports, then they will shut up. They will listen to only that kind of aggressive uh, um, uh, um, uh, policy, not writing letters, not telling them, please consider this. All those things will not will not do any good. You know, with the Rohingya Muslims, that's another important uh, um, I, you know, subject you are bringing up because who are the Rohingya Muslims? They are ethnically, they are Tamil. Those who migrated to the Burmese uh, territories during the British time to 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 do um, uh, railroad building and other work, they took them from Tamils. They all became ethnically uh, when they went there. They were non-Muslims, but afterwards they became Muslims. And so, and people don't real a lot of people don't realize this, and they think India was the cash cow, but Burma was actually the cash cow of the Indian Empire. And there's a book. There's a George Orwell wrote a book about this. Um, that talks about different, the different ethnic populations going into Burma because the British wanted to mine minerals, right? And, and all the yeah. resources there. And that's, this is a direct result of the British empire. And, uh, in previous shows, we've talked about the evils of the British empire. So, uh, but, uh, but, but George Orwell wrote this book called Burmese days that goes into this and talks about the different populations. So I think it's, uh, it's worthwhile to, to, mm-hmm. to mention that there's such a, a, a hard, uh, a, a substantial amount of context that that uh, within each one of these settings uh, that that needs to be understood because otherwise we just speak in these platitudes of you know the, uh, India is Hindu uh, you know they they you know that's their religion the Hindi is their language but it's that's not the truth um, in Burma we talk about the, what's happening with the Rohingya well the Rohingya are a direct result of this 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 post-colonial environment and uh and they were have, were brought there during a specific period and not only that they they they've been residing for there for generations now and it's 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 not necessarily a problem as much as it is something that needs to be addressed that that they are now they're, they're now Miramarians. I don't know if that's the right <laughs> word. So, so yeah. <laughs> I, 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 it'll always be Burma to me, but maybe they're Miramar. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and, but it's, it's very similar with India. There's much more populations, much more ethnicities, much more religions, and the populations are much larger, right? I always say there's 200 million Muslims there. So, uh, and so the challenge is, is that you're dealing with a multi-faith environment, multi-ethnic, multicultural, um, inter and intra-faith components, and then you're multilingual in India. And the challenge is, is like this one entity, this one group is steamrolling, uh, uh their predecessors, right? So for example, the Christians and, 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 and all the other populations. And there's a, there, there doesn't, it doesn't, this is the makings of a, of a, of a, a much more um, in-depth and hyper uh, Miramarian in situation. You're talking about ethnic, cultural, religious uh, um, uh, persecution, and uh, that could lead to much, much worse things. Um, and uh, and and this is it's happening right now. That the country is on fire. There's protests all throughout the country. Correct. Um, and there are. I mean, I, I always quote, there's closing a church a week in, in India. I always say that, and that's on your website. 
uh, that they're closing a church a week uh, and and no one's saying anything about it. Um, so the vocalness of is really important. And I believe that the president, if he was aware of the situation, would speak directly about it. But uh, we need the institutions and agents of, in our government that advocate for religious freedom need to address and and weigh in on this issue. It's, it's, See, even if the president is not interested in helping the Indian Christians, for his own sake, for the sake of the American interest in Southeast Asia, South Asia, and um, across the Indian Ocean corridor, it's very critical because the moment it, it is a very important to delegitimize this government's push and contain them because if they are allowed to go further and encouraged to implement more and more of these kinds of policies, what will happen is the country will break up. See, India is not one entity. Like I said, it's a, it's it at least there are about 1,800, 1,900 languages. Uh, people in the Northeast are racially different. They are more Mongoloid. Uh, people in the South are more Dravidian. People in the um, um, Punjab region, they are Sikhs. They, they, they claim to be different um, religious faith. Um, there are enough number of them in Canada to give you uh, more trouble. Now, if everyone says that we are not going to accept Hindi as our national language, or your idea of Hinduism as our faith, then India has the potential to break up into at least five different states, in my opinion. Now, that region, if you think Pakistan breaking up will be a, a nightmare, wait until India breaks up. That alone should wake up Washington. Wait, and stop wait. this nonsense from happening so that for the long-term interests of the U.S., India should remain as a single entity, as one nation, for the long-term interest of the United States. Matthew made a comment earlier about how, and, and maybe Matthew can make this when we were having that conversation about this, about about the blasphemy law and how this is different and as this may are upstream. Yeah. Can, can you make that comment yeah, again? Yeah, sure. I because I, I and, and then we'll ask John if it's a fair assessment. Yeah, I don't yeah. Know. Well, we're always trying to look at, at ways to uh, describe a situation relative to our understanding of other crises. Uh, and uh, Pinna pointed out that uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the attention of some of our U.S. agencies are on apostasy and blasphemy laws, which uh, I you know was supportive of. I, I supportive of. <laughs> uh, I was supportive uh -huh. of uh, U.S. government challenging uh -huh. uh, blasphemy and possibly laws when I was uh, working on Capitol Hill. Uh, so it's a subject that's worthy of attention. Um, but this citizenship law seems like uh, kind of an end run around even apostasy and blasphemy laws because you're just you're decitizing a whole swath of people, uh, a whole whole people groups at a time. So you don't, you don't even have to like enforce, um, religious purity on them. You just make them second class citizens or, or less. And so it seemed as far as a tier of, uh, if we, if we were to make a hierarchy, uh, of, you know, strategic ways to, uh, strip people of human rights, uh, de them seems to be, uh, pretty high up on the, on the bar. And like, who cares about a apostasy laws if everybody already is a second class citizen relative to the federal government. Is that 
uh, am I way off there, John uh, Prabhadas, or am no, I close? You are, you are right on point. You're you're actually right on point. One of the things that uh, Ajit saw here, I don't know if you remember him, uh, that represents the Indian American Muslim Council in Washington. He himself is a Hindu. He's not a Muslim, um, but he represents the Indian American Muslim Council mm-hmm. in Washington. Told me, he reminded me something very interesting recently. He said, India has laws exact word to word that the Pakistani blasphemy law has, except that it doesn't call it a blasphemy law. And then he will, he will give, now if you talk to him, he will give you a, a, a beautiful explanation on, uh, because he has the language, the, the draft laws, not draft law, the actual um, uh, language of the bill, everything with him. And he can show, com- show the comparison between what the blasphemy law says and what is this law uh, say? That's pretty fascinating. Well, John, I, we've uh, monopolized your time enough for today. I really appreciate your insights and uh, your time out of your schedule, especially on an impromptu basis. Um, what? Uh, my last question, uh, Pena might have another. My last question is what uh, words or what encouragement would you have uh, or what ask would you have of Indian Americans uh, living here as they watch this uh, unfold? Well, the Indian Americans um, should stop taking for granted that the American government, by virtue of quote-unquote Christian, Mm -hmm. um, should come to their rescue without them asking for it. Um, For example, just um, about 10 days ago, a member of Congress met with some of our members in New York, a sitting member of Congress. And he told them that he never knew about all these things happening because nobody came and talked to him and they are not organized. <laughs> and when you ask the Indian Christians there in that meeting, they say, well, we are Christians, you are a Catholic, and you should uh, know all these things even without me coming and telling you. That is that's, that's not exist, practical. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So it is important for the Indian American Christians in these um uh, 50 U.S. states, whether they are um, U.S. citizens or a permanent residents or they are working in the IT industry as guest worker, doesn't matter. As long as they um, help raise the, uh, the tone and, and raise this discussion, the, the syllable, the, this, uh, the, the, um, uh, what the word I'm looking for, um, um, you know, to 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 contribute to uh, the discussion in Washington, that will go a long way. And then it is it is time that they should stand up for their faith and 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 the rights of uh, their own church members. Um, if, if not, uh, it it is not a political um, uh, activism. It is not even uh, partisan. It is it is something beyond politics and you know they should realize how important it is for them to get involved with it in this in the show i think that there's a i mean the complexity of the issue is there but very simply you could turn around and say there's a law that 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 excludes whole popular religious populations and that's not cool so (laughs) and it's the largest democracy in the world that's the largest democracy in the world shouldn't be doing that I, I, I mean, I, you know, as a New Yorker, I'm just kind no, of throwing it great. out there. It's a great summary um, of our of our you know, hour long conversation. <laughs> you know, and so 
you know, whether it's an in, Indian Christians, whether it's Indian Muslims, or whether it's the Hindus, because certain, certain, all this stuff comes around. You yeah. know what I mean? So, you know, sooner or later, it's going to, there's an issue there. Uh, but but then we also have a, a geopolitical and a security issue. If we're talking about 50% of a country is going to be excluded, what, what's, what's their next step? And their next step is uh, if you know, is violence a justified response to, to political and religious oppression? And right now there's protesting going around all across, across India. And that's, that's, I think a a concern from a national security standpoint. Um, and, uh, and then I think from the next thing is, is like, you know, what is the solution? And I know that we sit at the earth round table, we talk about this, but I, I was shocked this morning that there wasn't enough, there wasn't a, 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 a steady stream from our institutions that protect religious yeah. freedom addressing yeah. this. Uh, and, and, uh, which means that, you know, we're going to have to table our conversation about the, 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 the scrappy stuff that we wanted to talk about for later. But John has been very gracious to, to make us spend this time. So I appreciate you taking the time, John, and, 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 yeah. uh, and schooling That's us right. on this stuff. I, I just want to quote, uh, uh, one of the Hindu party, BJP party leaders in the parliament, um, recently, he said, uh, quote, Muslims and Christians will be wiped out of India by December 31st, 2021. Mm. It mm. is a member of parliament. And if we don't wake up to it, something seriously wrong with us. Gentlemen, really appreciate your time and insights on this. Our guest has been John Prabhudas, president of the Federation of Indian American Christian Organizations. He's based in Washington, D.C., Gentlemen, John and John, both, thank you for your time. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Show notes from this episode, including many news links, as well as information about John's organization, are available at crossingphase.com. Hit us up on Twitter, at crossingphase, also at mthawk and at jtpennant on Twitter. This has been Crossing Phase with Matt Hawkins and John Penna, a podcast of Roll Top Productions. If you like what you hear and would like to help defray the cost of the show, consider sponsoring us on Patreon by visiting crossingphase.com. Crossing Phase is available on all your favorite podcast outlets, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. We'd appreciate your review of our program, especially in the iTunes store. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at mthawk at jtpinna or at Crossing Faiths. Music for this episode is courtesy Vajra, whose music is available at thevajratemple.com, Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon. Show notes for this episode and more are available at crossingfaiths.com.